We are in Exodus. We are doing a summer series called The Gospel According to Moses. A brief uh, look at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. So we're now in Exodus chapter 19, 20, and 24. Just a couple of verses. If you're following with us, that's great. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the back. If you have a Bible and you don't have it with you, again, I will assume you have memorized it all. So you left it at home. Someday I'm not going to get a laugh and I'll just have to skip that joke and move on to something else. But uh, that one person that's laughing and everybody else is saying, will you stop laughing? I'm tired of hearing that. All right, Exodus chapter 19. Let me just read a couple of verses. Uh, then we're going to go to chapter 20, a couple of verses, one through three in chapter 24. We're looking at the giving of the law. So um, I'm just going to read it through. Exodus 19, 2 through 6, 21 through 3, 24, 4 through 11. Exodus 19. On the, third new, on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the people, to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the kingdom of mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Chapter 20, and the, and the Lord spoke, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. Chapter 24, verse 4. And the, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord the law. And he rose early in the morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Verse 6 of chapter 24. And Moses took half of the blood, put it in the basin, half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Verse 8, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet as it was pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel and beheld God and ate and drank with him. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. The giving of the law. If you're new here, we like to go through books of the Bible. Uh, We're studying the book of Acts together, actually. We stopped in the summer to do a short series through the book of Exodus, just seven-part series on the life of Moses. Exodus means departure. Uh, It's the story of Israel's departure, Israel's deliverance from the land of Egypt into the promised land of Israel. 
We said that Exodus as a, as a main theme story or, or one way to, to sum up the book of Exodus is that it is the story of the redeeming work of God for His glory and our good. It's the redeeming work of God for His glory. That means to display and to, to show forth His greatness and His worthiness to show His glory and for our good. As you know, Exodus opens up Israel's in slavery. And up to now, as we get to Exodus 19, we saw how God miraculously spared Moses, baby Moses, the mediator of Israel, by delivering him from the Egyptians. Pharaoh had to put an edict out and was killing all the small children in the land. And Moses was spared. Then we saw how Moses met God face to face or face to bush in 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 a burning bush. And, and like any other encounter with the true and the living God, God calls Moses to himself and then sends Moses out on mission. Okay? God calls in and sends out. And he tells Moses, listen, something simple, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh very simply to let my people go so that they may go and worship me. So that they go and worship me. Of course, you know how the story goes. Pharaoh wasn't having it. Said, no, 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 no. And then finally, on the 10th plague, uh, God f- sent and killed all the firstborn uh, of that land. And God then, excuse me, Pharaoh then released the Egyptians, released the Israelites to go out of Egypt, to go to the promised land, to serve and to worship God. But you know how the story goes. Pharaoh had to change of mind. You know, the place is empty. He's got nobody else to f- you know, feed him, serve him coffee in bed. He's like, you know what? We should have never let them. They were wonderful servants of ours. Let's go get them. And we saw last week that, uh, two weeks ago, that Israel was, was forced, kind of moved by God along, out of Egypt toward the promised land and backed really into a corner. They had the Red Sea in front of them and the army behind them. And, and we saw how God did that to show Israel that they need to trust him. That God will display his glory in in delivering them from the Egyptians and God will display his glory, his greatness, his eminence, his preeminence and his his sovereignty over the world even in destruction. Clear in that passage. He delivers Israel by grace. He destroys and brings justice down on the Egyptians as the sea swallows them up and kills everybody. God is seen clearly as the God of all creation, he will get glory, he said. I will get glory. And we see God get glory in that incident of the getting out, the the, the deliverance of the Red Sea, uh, of Israel through the Red Sea. Now remember, we've been saying all along, you need to understand, especially when we get into this text, that the Bible, and particularly the book of Exodus, teaches us what slavery is, teaches us what salvation is. The Bible teaches us what deliverance is and what redemption is. Some of you may have your own ideas and thoughts and conjure up your own understanding of what salvation is or what redemption is or what slavery is. Maybe you heard it in school. Maybe you heard it in your university. Maybe you heard it on the Oprah show. I don't know. But we look to the Scripture and the Scripture teaches us what slavery is, what sin is, what redemption is, what salvation is. Exodus opens up, they're in slavery. They cannot serve, they cannot worship God. They're in bondage. Slavery, according to the Word of God, is serving and worshiping anything more central, more significant, more important, treasuring something central to your life more important than God Himself. 
And Exodus teaches us that until we're able to worship God, until we're able to serve God and God alone, then and only then can you be free. Exodus teaches us that we can't do it on our own. That God initiates, God is the one who saves. True freedom, true rescue, true deliverance from bondage is not complete until it finds its utter completeness, its fulfillment in the worship of the one true God. Then we can be free. It's not just having no God. That's still slavery. Some of you think, you know what? I don't listen to any rules. I, I have no religion. I have no beliefs. You're in bondage. That's what Exodus is teaching us. So unless we're overwhelmed, and I hope today we are, we really see the love of God. Uh, unless we're overwhelmed by the love of God, and we behold Him as the most glorious, the most treasurable thing in all of creation, we're stuck in bondage, but God wants to see us, see Him in His glory, and He wants to release us from that and walk with Him and worship Him. We see that in the giving of the law. Believe it or not, I hope you see the law something very different than when you walked in this morning than when you leave this afternoon. Okay? I'm not saying it's going to go after 12, although it might, but you know what I meant. All right. So here's where we're going. Again, I want to just give prop, you know, just shout out Dr. Keller. If you haven't heard of him, Dr. Tim Keller of Presbyterian Church in, in New York City. Did a great job, wonderful job in teaching on this whole topic, and uh, I've, I've learned a lot. So I just want to say that to you uh, right up front. Number one, we're going to look how the law shows us. We're going to look at the law. It's going to show us, first, our inability to save ourselves. You can't save yourself, and the law is going to show us that. Number two, the law is going to show us who we are. We're a treasured possession, and we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean? What the law is going to show us. The law is going to reveal to us God, who he is in his nature, and and at the same time, as we see who God is, it's going to reveal to us the, the default mode of every human heart. Yes, you that are sitting here today. We're all in the same boat, and I'm going to show you that. And then finally, the law really does point most importantly, to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going, okay? That's where we're headed. So number one, I'm going to have to do a lot. I got such a dry, uh, from the, trying to get my uh, head cleared out here. Okay, number one, the law shows us our inability to save ourselves. Look with me in chapter 19, verse 2, right? The, the, the third moon come, the people are out of Egypt, Remember, they've been delivered. The, 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 the Red Sea had closed down. The Egyptians were, were killed. Moses now is taking them up to the mountain, verse 1. Verse 2 says, They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, where he gets the law. And there they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse 3, chapter 19, verse 3, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain. Just so you know, Jot it down in your Bible, Genesis 3.12, this was a promise that God said to Moses when he first met him at the same mountain. You'll know I'm he, the one who sent you, the I am, when I finally deliver my people and you're back up here with them worshiping me. That's proof that I am who I say I am. And that's what we see right here. God calls him from the mountain. That mountain is, a, is symbolic for this, this transcendency of God, this, this holiness, this otherness uh, in, in ancient uh, cultures that they would transcend to the majesty and they would go up to the mountain to talk to God. In a negative sense, you remember the mountain, the Tower of Babel. But here God calls up Moses, come on up. Come on up. Verse 3. Tell the people of Israel, 
You, verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Stop. Don't miss this. Extremely important. Extremely uh, significant. Before God gives the Mosaic law, before he lays out the covenant, the Mosaic law, before he lays that the whole thing out, he reminds them that he has already rescued them. You see that? You see what comes first and what comes second. He says, I am the one who carried you away from slavery. God's like, just in case you don't understand that, uh, let me, let's use an eagle as imagery. You know what that depicts? An eagle in those days, and, and you even see it in the Old Testament, uh, were birds who helped the weak. Deuteronomy 32, God is said to have shielded Israel and cared for them. He guarded them because they were the apple of his eye. And then it says, like an eagle, God's saying, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions, its wings. So in other words, you see this this caring, this loving uh, picture and portrait of God just opening his wings and protecting the young. The picture is clear. What did the Israelites do to earn their salvation? What did they do to contribute to their salvation, to their deliverance? The answer is nothing. Did they wage a battle and fight their way? Absolutely not. Did they swim across across the Red Sea? Absolutely not. They added nothing. They contributed nothing to their deliverance. Israel's deliverance from Egypt is like an eagle swooping down, covering its young, protecting and, and, and fighting for their young. That's what God is saying. I did it. I carried you. You didn't walk. I carried you. You didn't fight. I carried you. You know what else eagles do? Eagles are great warriors. They're fierce birds. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will bring a nation against you, he says. He's, he's talking about chastising Israel from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. So God is saying, listen, I came down, I covered you, I protected you, I carried you. I I took care of you. I fed you in the wilderness. I did all that, and you know what? There are people out there trying to get you, and you know what? I stepped in, and I even fought for you. I did all that for you. I struck down the enemy in the sea. I am that, that eagle, that fierce bird who protects the young. See what God is saying that? You have to see that. I protected you. I loved you. I cared for you. I brought you to myself. It's not just saving Israel. It is, is drawing Israel into intimacy with God. The Exodus is not just about getting out of Egypt. It's about getting close to God. And then he says in verse 5, obey me. Salvation, deliverance, Redemption comes first. Then he says, obey me. Every other philosophy, every other religion, every other self-justification in our world is just complete opposite. Okay? Be a good person and God will like you. Try really hard and God will love you. Even reincarnate three or four times, maybe you'll get it right. Or so, or pay this karmic debt that you owe. Or go to Mecca or pay 10% of your tithe. God will love you. That's religion. That's not the gospel. 
Here we see the gospel where God says, I have fully saved you. I have completely accepted you. I redeemed you. You added nothing, therefore, hear my word. Therefore, obey me. Every other heart, every other wandering heart that wants to be justified, that wants to feel like I matter, that like I, I belong, that, that I have value, I have dignity and worth, looks to do it on their own. But not here. Before the law was given, God makes it very clear. I carried you, I loved you, I saved you, I accepted you, now obey me. What would it have been like if this verse was written or given to Moses while they were still in slavery? Moses, I I hear you guys down there. I see what they're doing to you. I see the beatings. I see the mistreatment. I see the horror. I hear all that. Okay, now here's my law. Let's see how you do. Follow my commands. I'll check in on you in a little while. And if you got it right and you get it right and you do it right, then I'll deliver you. But that's what we say to our own selves. God will never accept me because. I'm working so hard. I'm trying to justify myself. I want to feel like I matter. I want to feel like I'm important. I want to feel like I have value, dignity, and worth. God is saying, I saved you, I delivered you, I carried you, now obey me. So the law shows us our inability to save ourselves. Next, the law shows us who we are. One, we are God's, look at treasured possession, look at verse 5. Now therefore, since I've done all that, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, verse 5. See that? Now, let me just, let me just, before we jump into this, let let me just share with you quickly what are covenants. Maybe some of you have never heard me talk about covenants. God is a covenant-making God who makes covenant with his people. God is a covenant-making God who makes covenants with his people. We see throughout the Bible. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology uh, book says, a covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that requires the condition of their relationship. So covenants are about relationships. People make covenants with each other. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife. In a covenant of marriage. There are basically two kinds of covenants that God makes with us. Remember, we don't come to God and say, God, here's a covenant I'm making with you. Here's the term. We, that's not the way it works. God comes to us and says, this is my covenant with you. And here are the terms. We either accept it or we don't. So God makes two kinds of covenant. One is unilateral and, and, and universal, like Noah. Here's the rainbow. I'm making a covenant with you. I'll never destroy the earth by water again. See that rainbow? Remember, you were wicked. I destroyed you once, but I'm not doing it anymore. What did Noah have to do? Nothing. Unconditional. It's a covenant God made with Noah. And who's the head of that covenant? Noah. And who does it implicate? All of us. That's a promise we take. We see, when we see outside, you know, we look at a rainbow, we're thinking, I think anyway, there's a promise of God. That's what I think. Okay? Some covenants are universal and unilateral, but some are conditional and some are unconditional. And, and, and when you open your Bible and you get to chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis, and, and then you read later on in the Old Testament, you realize that God made a covenant with Adam. It was a conditional covenant. Adam, you have everything, even a beautiful wife, no clothes. Life's good. Just don't eat from that tree. 
Everything is yours. But don't eat from that tree. But if you do, Adam, just, if, just in case, just let me make this straight, right? You parents going, yeah, I've had this conversation before. If you do, this is what you're going to get. And God's not like us. If you do it again, this is what you get. If you do it, you know, he's like, if you do this, this is what you get. And guess what? He did it. That's what they got. It's condition. Obey me. Love me. Serve me. Be faithful to me. Blessing, not curse. Turn your back on me. Rebel against me. Sin against me. Curse. And that's what's a conditional covenant. But in the midst of that conditional covenant, God comes along and makes a covenant of grace. This covenant of works, covenant of grace. And he tells to Abraham, listen, I chose you, not because you're a handsome guy wandering around in the wilderness. I chose you because I put my love upon you, and I make a promise to you. I promise to give you a land. I promise to give you a lineage. I promise that from you will come the Messiah. It's an unconditional promise. It's of grace. If you're not sure, just read Abraham's life. Not through a, a Bible study book. Just read the Bible. Abraham has crazy things going on in his life. If it was because of obedience, we're in crazy trouble. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So God makes covenants of condition. He made one with Adam, he failed, and makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and he's going to do it no matter what. I say all that because here God is making a covenant with the people through Moses called the Mosaic Covenant, okay? Do you know, some of you here when we study Genesis, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, I just want to mention this, in Genesis chapter 15, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, that's the word make a covenant, cut a covenant, if you remember, it's kind of strange. Like, we, we make covenants now, or we make agreements now. We get 19 lawyers, 37 piles of papers. No one knows what anyone's signing, and we make a covenant. But then it was really simple. They, they would get some, they would get a chicken, they would get a lamb, whatever it was. They would cut the piece, they would sacrifice the animal, cut it in two pieces, put it side by side, and they would walk in between this bloody two-piece bird. And what they would do, they would, it's in Scripture, you can read it in Jeremiah, uh, Genesis 15. What they would do is they would walk between the animals. In other words, it would symbolize a kind of a picture to say, this is what would happen to me if I don't keep my covenant. And then both parties would walk through and say, this is what would happen to us if we don't keep the covenant. Do you know that when Abraham went into covenant, God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, the only one that walked through those two pieces was God himself. It was a one-sided covenant of grace. Very clear in Genesis 15. God is saying, I will be like those pieces if I don't keep my covenant. And that's not possible. Okay? So God is, God is saying, it's, it's one-sided. It, it, it's, it's, it's my grace upon you, Moses, uh, upon you, Abraham. I'm giving you this promise. I will keep my word. You'll get a land. You'll get a lineage. You'll be a blessing to people. And you will, from you, the Messiah will come. Very, very important. Very, very important. Okay? So I tell you all this again because God is entering into a covenant with Abraham, uh, Moses right here. And a lot of people, and it's true, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. A covenant of works. He gives them the law, obey the law. But I need you to see that this morning. That the covenant that was given to the people through Moses, the Mosaic Covenant, 
is, is not a, a new separate covenant, but is part of the Old Testament, excuse me, the, 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 the grace covenant made with Abraham. Okay? He is not, it's not like God said, all right, I have this covenant of promise, of grace. I'm going to do this with Abraham and his descendants. Oh, by the way, I changed my mind, and now I have this covenant with Moses, and it's of works. This no longer means anything to me. That's not what happens here. The covenant of grace continues, okay? It's a continuation of this grace covenant God made with Abraham. He's continuing it in Genesis that he made into Exodus and given in the Mosaic law. It's a continuation. It's added to. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, I need, you to, I need you to follow me on this. This is what Paul says in Galatians. Now listen. He says, The promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, that's the covenant of promise, covenant of grace, God does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but to one, to your offspring who is Christ. That's the promise. Christ will come. Verse 17 of Galatians 3. This is what I mean, Paul says, the law which came 430 years afterward what we're talking about, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, in other words, the promise, everything God promised came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Follow that? It'll make sense when we move on. So the Mosaic covenant of works is part of a broader covenant of grace. We cannot, it is wrong to think that Israel was redeemed by grace into the promised land and now, it was by grace, now they're in a covenant of law, works, salvation. That's not accurate. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Okay? It's not that now Israel has to work Follow rules, otherwise they're not saved. They're already saved. You got that? Shake your head. Okay, got that. you need to follow that. So the Mosaic Covenant further unfolds the Abrahamic Covenant of grace. And doesn't mean that all of a sudden now salvation has always been by faith alone. From Genesis to maps, okay? Faith alone through Christ alone. The Israels are not to keep, somebody got that, okay. The Israels are not to keep the law in order for God to save them. They're already saved. This had to do with their relationship, okay. This had to do with their expectation, okay. This has to do with once they're saved, they're obligated now to act in a manner worthy of their calling. So what we see here is what God is doing, or what God has done for them in history now his basis of what he's doing now is, is, is expectations from then on. In other words, I saved you, now hear my word. Deuteronomy 7, I, I think this really wraps it up. He, God's speaking to, just in case you're like, yeah, I'm the promised people, man. God just loves me because I'm a, a, a nice young man. No, for you, he says, are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you, the Jewish people, to be a people for his treasured possession. We'll get to that. Out of all the people I have chosen you, out of all the people the face of the earth, then God says, listen, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But, just in case you're wondering, it is because the Lord loves you. God's initiative, I love you, I've chosen you. It's not you, it's me. 
And I am keeping my oath. I am keeping my promise that I swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out of the hand of Egyptians and redeemed you. So I've done this. It's not because you're great. It's not because you're wonderful. It's because I chose you. Right? So God's grace and redemption had created a relationship with expectations. Reciprocal love. I mean, think about it. I loved you. I saved you. Now obey me. You say, well, you know, I, I get that. And that's what it says. If you indeed may obey my voice, keep my covenant. Okay, I've saved you. Now obey my voice. Keep my covenant. But then it says, you shall be my treasured possessions among all the people. Well, what does that mean? Were they not his treasured possession? Some people see that and say, well, I guess you must obey in order to be their treasured possession. First of all, the word treasured possession in Hebrew means personal, private stock of the king. In other words, you know, back in those days, the king owned everything. So like if he wanted your china, he would just go to your house and take it because he's the king. So everything was his. Just like the scripture here says, all the earth is mine. God's reminding him, like the natural king, he owns everything. I really own everything. But out of my private stash or, or, or out of my own prized possession, that in which I keep. David used to keep his own prized possession in his, in his, in his castle, in his mansion, in his, in his home that he gave. He actually gave some of it out to build a temple. He said, out of my prized possession, out of my own personal stuff. That's what he's saying. So in one sense, God's creator of us all, but in a real sense, he's brought these people into a deeper intimacy in his own private possession. But let me ask you, is Israel not already God's private, personal, treasured possession? Yes. Are they not already set aside, redeemed? Yes. He's already constituted them as a people. He's already braced them. He already distinguishes them as a, as a nation separated from all the other nations. So Moses is not saying, listen, Keep the law, and I will make you to be what you aren't already. Moses is saying, keep God's law, and you will be what he, God, made for you. There's a big difference. He made you to be a treasured possession, a priest, a holy nation. What made God's people so precious is not their own intrinsic value, but the value placed on them by God's redeeming love. They are not precious because who they are, someone wrote, but because of who God is. Now keep God's law and you'll be what you were made to be. Let me say that again. Keep the law of God so you'll be what God made you to be, his own treasured possession. Let me illustrate that for you. In the New Testament, if you, oh, it's 1 John 5. I didn't put number 1. 1 John 5, 2. Listen, listen to what, this is a great illustration to illustrate what's happening here with, with Israel. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 says this, the Apostle John. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Do you know what Moses and John are saying? Reciprocal love. Here's how you know you love somebody. If, if you say you love somebody, but you're using them, you don't really love them. You might need them, you might hunger for them, but you don't really love them. When you get a love letter 
from the person you love and you're reading that letter and you're spending time with that person, what are you doing? You're looking for ways to connect in such a way that you can reciprocate that love and show your love to them. What, what makes them tick? What makes them happy? What gives them pleasure? Because you realize how much pleasure you get from giving them pleasure. You realize how much pleasure you get if you're in love. You know the pleasure of your mate brings you much pleasure. And if you understand the love of God for you, you get pleasure. John says it's not burdensome adding to doing the things God commands you. Here's the problem. Some of you, if I can, if I can say, when you hear the word obey God, you don't like that word. You don't like the word obey. You, you don't want to hear the word. In fact, you hate that word. It's a terrible word. Right? In fact, some of you are saying, you know what? Yeah, I used to hear that word all the time. That's why I left home and joined the circus. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't want to hear obey. He, obey is a great word. Providing. Listen, obeying is a great word. Providing you have the right father. It all depends on who your dad is. It all depends who, who, who's calling you to obey. Obey is either it's a duty or it's the delight. God pursues us. God loves us. God saves us. He changes us for his glory, for our joy. It's good, it's right. He says, obey me. You can't say, I love God, but I don't want to hear what he has to say. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. The problem sometimes, the problem sometimes, when someone tells you to obey God's command, the issue isn't so much obedience as it is love. Understanding who God is, understanding the love God has for you, understanding. You know, I tell kids all this time, you know, especially younger kids, I told someone this, this week, the commands of God are not for your hurt, but for your good. Because God loves you, and God, has a, God, God, God wants and to care for you, and he has given his law to you. So the law shows us, the law shows us that we are precious to him. Okay, understand that. Also, look, it shows us that we are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I'm going to go through this quickly because we don't, uh, we, we've talked about this before. The priesthood wasn't really given yet till later on, but in Israel's life, they already known that they were to be a, a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. What does that mean? A kingdom of priests means that every single member of Israel was supposed to be a minister, was supposed to be a person who, who stands in the gap, a person who intercedes on behalf of God. You know, the priest intercedes, kind of sacrifices, uh, steps in for God and, and ministers to others. The whole nation was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. You see that? And a holy nation means separate nation. But listen, when you hear the word holy nation, it's not simply holy huddle. A holy nation is a nation that is supposed to be holy, separated, but whose light is supposed to shine in the world, even in Israel. It didn't start in Matthew 28. It didn't start in Matthew. Mission did not start in Matthew 28. Israel is supposed to live on mission. When Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, in the gospel according to Matthew, let your light so shine, you know, put your light up on the hill, he's not talking about you. Like you have a little light. I'm supposed to shine. That's not, read the text. Read the context. You is y'all. You heard a lot of y'all last week because Bill was preaching. Y'all. Y'all. He's talking to the church. Yous. Y'all. 
or a light. You can't be a little light on you. How many people are going to see your little light up in the city in the hell? Nobody. It's communal. It's communal. So we're supposed to be a ministry, a priest of ministers, and a light together, community together up on the hill so people can see the glory of Christ. And we can be showcased onto the, to the nations, all the nations. Okay? First Peter picks up that, First Peter 1, uh, 9, 2, 9. He says, you are a chosen race. He's talking the New Testament. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You can't be a, a chosen race and a holy nation by yourself. A people, you can't be, you're a person, just in case you're wondering. It says a people for his own possession. We see that, we see that intimacy, that treasure. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into the marvelous light. This is New Testament. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, now you've got crazy mercy. Then he writes, Beloved, I urge you, he's talking to us, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't live like everybody else. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Be separate unto God. But keep your conduct, that's walking, that's living life, in your communities, in your schools, in your neighborhoods. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Don't run from people. They need to see the light. Don't join them and so that your light gets put out. There's that tension we talk about here. Christians were never meant to jump in a holy huddle, live in community, and not engage the lost people. Oh, my word. When God calls you in, he sends you out. He tells Israel, listen, you've got my law. My, my law says you can't save yourself. My law will show you you need me. And my law will, 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 will show my revealed will, will show who I am. My law will, will, will make you a treasured possession. My law will put you and make you a kingdom of priests. And listen, my law will show the world how good and glorious I am. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. Dr. Keller says it right. He says, so you see, the law's job is not just to make you an individual, have an individual treasuring mutual delight relationship with God. Yes, but secondly, it is to mold you into a community that shows the world who he is. The law is the way to show the world who he is. It's the new community. We are to love our spouses differently. We are to use our talents differently. We are to use sex differently. We are to use money and power and influence differently. We're a different community. God has called us, given us his law, has called us to himself and sent us out into the world. It's communal. And the law reveals our heart's default. Turn with me to chapter 20. We're not going to talk about each law. I'm not going to get into it. But the law reveals God in our heart's default mode, okay? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all the words. Then he says, I am the Lord your God. Now he's getting ready to give the Ten Commandments, if you know this verse, uh, Exodus 20. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't it interesting? He starts with the gospel again. Before I give you the ten moral standards, my, my law, let me remind you one more time. I brought you out of the land of slavery. You had nothing to do with it. Okay? Got that? I got it. All right. Now, let me give you my law. Verse 1 Two things about the law I, want, I just want to talk about today. Just two things. Number one, again, the law reminds them that their salvation is of God. Right? 
salvation of God. But importantly, which I want to point to here, is the law is a reflection of who God is. So it reveals God. So when God gives us the law, his law, it's a reflection of his character. Whenever laws are passed, it's a reflection on those who want to pass the law. So God reveals himself, gives us the law. Uh, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says, the preface of the Ten Commandments teaches us that because God is the Lord, our God, our Redeemer, therefore we're bound to him. God is saying, listen, he used the, he used the covenant name Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I am the creator God. I am the Lord, sustainer, self-existing one. I am the one who is unchangeable. I am the one who's eternal. I am the one who made a covenant with Abraham. I am the one who met Moses in the bush. I am that one. I am the just one. I am the righteous one. I am the self-existent one. I am the supreme one. And now I'm laying down my law. I am giving this as a reflection of who I am. We're talking about God's moral law. Okay? Some of you know the ceremonial laws, which Christ fulfilled, all the sacrifices. There's God's uh, civil law as a theocracy that was supposed to follow. I'm talking about God's moral law. Be holy as I am holy. Remember that? Don't lie because I can't lie. It's a reflection of who God is. That's the moral law. And the moral law, and I want to be careful. I want you to hear me. All right, stay awake for me a little longer. I want you to hear me. The law by God was given to mankind, and mankind is held by that eternal law All of mankind. It's not just I'm not a Christian. God's law is God's reflection of who he is. He is the creator God. Your creator God. Whether you acknowledge it or not. The moral law is by which the governor, uh, excuse me, the creator governs the moral creatures. All moral creatures all the time. It reveals who he is. Okay? It was Plato who once said, you know, uh, in one of his famous dialogues, he says, does God command the law because the law is good or is the law good because God commands it? You got that? Does God command the law because the law is good or is the law good because God commands it? The answer is both. The law with his goodness springs from the goodness of God. God reveals his character, shows us who he is. We have expectations now. Of, of, of the salvation that we've received in Christ to live a certain way. That's what it's about. It's about relationships. Okay? It's about relationships. The Lord reveals his character. Okay? God reveals who he is. So, here's my question. And you guys are going to walk this with me. Why would God, why would God in verse chapter 20, verse 1, Tell them about the gospel and then begin to give them the moral law. And why, this, this is the question I asked myself, why was the first law that was given have no other gods before me? Could God have said, all right, listen, Moses, don't worry about the, the order. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. Don't have any of the gods before me. Don't commit adultery. I don't think so. I think they were put in order on purpose. I think the first one was there for a reason. And you know what else I think? I think God says it's of grace and have no other gods before me. You know why? Because your heart and my heart, whenever salvation is received by grace, our default mold is to go back. Default mode is to go back and to work for our salvation. And God's reminding us right there, listen, if you do that, it's self-justification. It's called idolatry. It's called idolatry. I have no other gods before me. I saved you. I justified you. I brought you to myself. I did the work. I called you. I brought you to myself. Have no other gods before me. Because you know what happens we do? 
what we do is we have other gods before him and we commit adultery. And then we try to get justified by things in our lives, whether even if it's good things, even if it's keeping the law of God. We still try to justify ourselves through things that we do rather than trusting in Christ who does justify us. Okay, let, let, me, let me, if I can, let me illustrate that for you. Okay, I think I have a great illustration if I could find it. Some of you, when you hear me talk about the law of God, don't do this, don't do that, your heart sings. Ah! Preach it, pastor, tell them what to do. A lot of people around here now living like they ought to live. Preach it. Don't do this, don't do that. And your heart sings. Why? Because you live to a certain standard. You've achieved that certain standard. And therefore, you're justifying your life, who you are as a person, who you are to value, dignity, and worth on what you do. You say, no, 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 I'm saved by grace. No, 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 no. If you look down on others, I hate to say it, I love you, but it's self-righteous is called being a Pharisee. Because God reminds us, your salvation is, I brought you on the wings of an eagle. You brought nothing into your salvation. Have no other gods before me. So don't make your job, your children, your house, your relationships a god. Because if you do, you violated the very first commandment. So when you hear law, you're, yeah, get them, pastor. You're like, oh, no, self-righteousness. But hear how it works as well. Some of you hear the law and know what your heart is doing? Sinking. You're thinking, oh, man. Whenever I hear the law of God, I'm, I'm just... It's a burden. It's not that you don't want to listen. It's not that you don't want to obey. But when you hear it, you hear achievement-based salvation, and it harms you. It hurts you. It's difficult for you. It, 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 it weighs down your heart because you have the same standard, but you can't reach it. So rather than being superior because look how good I am, you feel inferior because I can never make it. I can never make it. God redeems Israel by grace and gives them the law secondly and gives them the law, not only gives it to them secondly, but tells them the first thing you do is have no of the idols because he wants them to know, he wants us to know, religion means I obey, and therefore by my moral record, by my goodness, I am loved and accepted and forgiven. That's religion. The gospel is I am loved, I am accepted, I am forgiven because of Christ's moral record, and therefore I will obey. We're both obeying God, we're both following his moral standard. One is so that he will love me, the other one is because he loves me. One will just bring... You're either going to hit the wall, be there, that person, and look down on everybody else. You have to because you, you, you reached it. Or you're going to look at the law and the moral standard of God and say, I can never get that. Why bother? My heart is so heavy. That's not what God wants for us. That's not what God wants for us. He wants us all to see verse 2. I am the Lord your God. Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay, so I, I want you to, uh, before we move on to our very last point, I want you to see this. Salvation before rule keeping speaks to the heart and brings dependency upon God. But if we are working in any way and shape to get God to love and accept us, it will disintegrate us.
We need to realize, I am the Lord your God who brought you out. And I'll tell you something else. The last thing, the Lord not only reveals the perfect nature of God, our obligation, but also shows us our heart. That we're always, we get saved by grace, and we're trying to work for our salvation. But most importantly, and lastly, the law reveals to us Christ. Turn to chapter 24, and we'll close here. Chapter 24, verse 7. Now, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all, now he gave the law, chapter 20 through 24. He reads it to him. He gives it to him. And the people in verse 24, verse 7 says, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the co- blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron Nabon, and Abihu And 70 other elders went up. They saw God. They saw his feet. It was like a sapphire. They they laid, and he did not lay hands on them. He didn't kill them. But they met together and they ate before God. Now, just really quickly, think about this for a second. Can you imagine me right now reading you the law of God and saying to you, what will you do? If all of you say, we will obey it every word, I'm going to crack up. You won't even make it out of the building. Like, what were they thinking? You heard the moral perfection of God, his moral standard for you creatures. What will you do? We will obey every word. No, you won't. Not even on their best day, not even for their best hour. Like, what are you thinking? It just reaffirms the heart, thinking they can work for their salvation. Moses would tell him later on, listen, you know what? You, you guys have it somewhat right. You guys have it somewhat right. In fact, the Lord gives you all the decrees. In fact, the Lord is commanding you to obey everything he said. You got that right. You can't do it, but you got it right. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 19, I don't know if you know this, he says, they said, how can we get eternal life? You know what he tells them? If you want to enter in life, obey all the commandments. So there is like a double sword. You want eternal life? Obey all the commandments. You want to be righteous, you want to be ushered into the presence of God, you want to go up to the mountain of God, you want to fellowship with God, obey his commandments. Obey every single word, but you know what? You can't. What do we see here in this text as we close? We see blood and we see water, excuse me, and food. We see blood and we see food. Do you remember Abraham cut those pieces with the blood in between, he walked in between? That's what's going on. Moses makes a sacrifice to the Lord at the beginning of the chapter, takes some of the blood of the sacrifices and sprinkles it all over the people, sprays them with blood. As if to say, here's the shedding of blood. If you do not keep this commandment, let that happen to you, what happened to that sacrifice. Let you die. Let you break the covenant and curse be upon you. You act out the penalty. He is binding them to the law of God. And what happens next? The Lord, he sprinkles the blood, he binds them in the covenant, and then he goes up to the mountain, and, and he sees God. He doesn't see him face to face. His feet are like sapphire. And what are they doing? They're fellowshipping. They're eating a meal before the Lord. In Near Eastern, that's a sense of intimacy. That's, the, that's a celebration of a covenant that's been ratified. That is, that is close proximity. Come and share a meal with me. How can that be? They just lied. <laughs> They can't keep the covenant. I'll tell you why. Thousands of years later, a thousand years later, centuries later, somebody would come. Jewish 
boy born in Nazareth. He would come. And Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, on the night in which he was betrayed, on the night of the Passover, on the night of the Exodus meal, took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. Eat this meal with me. Drink this cup with me to his disciples. He tells them about the story of their deliverance of a greater deliverer, a greater redeemer, a greater redemption through his body and through his blood. This is the covenant in my blood. Hebrews 10 says, Let us draw near to God with sincere heart, full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilty conscience. On the cross, Jesus Christ bears our sin, sheds his blood, receives the curse that we deserve so that we can be blessed by God, so that we can be brought into God. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law perfectly, who obeyed God completely, was crucified, bloodshed so that you and I can come up to the mountain of God, so you and I can have fellowship with our God, so you and I can share a meal with our God, so you and I can be accepted before God. Not only does he enter into fellowship, not only is the blood a ways into the fellowship of God, but we get to stay there. Never think that the blood of Christ And the sacrifice of Christ, once and for all, for all sin, has to be redone each and every time you sin. It needs to be confession, it needs to be repentance. But Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. Jesus died a death you should have died. He died in your place. The covenant that you are under is the blood covenant of Jesus Christ, once and for all. So let me bring this full circle. Can you obey the law? As a Christian, should you listen and obey the moral will of God? The answer is absolutely. Will you fail? Absolutely. Will it destroy you? Not if you're under the blood. Can you live radically for the the glory and, 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 and the goodness of God's people and to see him declared and demonstrated and the gospel going forth? Can you live radically? Absolutely. Will you falter? Will you not do it perfectly? Absolutely. Is it okay if you're under the blood of the Lamb? You can't earn your salvation. All of a sudden, following and listening to and obeying the moral commands of God aren't so burdensome anymore. I've already accepted in the beloved. Jesus Christ and his blood sacrifice on my behalf makes me his prized possession. I am beautiful to him. He loves me. That can't change. It's not my blood. It's his blood. It's not my moral standing. It's his moral standing. So therefore, I don't need to be inferior I belong to Jesus. I don't need to be superior. I'm a wicked sinner deserving deserving hell. What I need to be is Christ-like. So can I use the moral law? Absolutely. I I don't have to worry about it destroying me because I'll never make it. But it's there to guide me. But it's okay. Jesus got me covered. Do I take it and say, oh, you know what? Then the moral law don't really matter. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you use the moral law to justify yourself, you're going to be prideful and nobody wants to be around you. Nobody's going to play with you, okay? But if you use the moral law also to say, I can't reach the standard, you're mocking the blood of Jesus. So as a family, we say, you know what? We're going to walk with integrity. We're going to walk. We're going to obey our God. We know we're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to strive. We're going to use the law to change our hearts. We're going to use the law to make us people to be more like Jesus. But you know what? I'm secured. Jesus fulfilled the law completely. He died as a curse on a tree so that I can enter in. That's just reality. 
So let's be radical. Let's love him with our whole heart. Let's worship him. Let's serve him. Let's obey him with our whole heart. We have nothing to lose. Jesus already lost it all for us. So now we can love people radically. We can be generous radically. We can be forgiving others radically because of all that Jesus did. Maybe you never heard that before. Maybe law, 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 law. Or maybe it's grace, grace, grace doesn't really matter. I say, you know what? Jesus died for my sins completely. You know what? I love him so much. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to follow his commands. I'll fail. I'll get on my knees. I'll repent regularly every day, every hour. But God loves me, and I'm going to keep, going. I'm going to keep getting up. I'm going to end with this illustration. I've used it before. I just love it. I think it's great because I'm a huge Derek Jeter fan, and I got the mic. So <laughs> he's breaking all kinds of records, you know what I mean, hitting records. He's just a great ball player. Awesome. I, I never talked to the man, never had a conversation with him, but I can tell you one thing I know. If I ask Derek Jeter, Derek, when you get up to the baseball, when you get up to the hit, are you trying to strike out or are you trying to get a hit? I guarantee you Derek Jeter will say, I'm trying to get a hit. Every time I go up, Paul O'Neill, every time, I'm trying to get a hit. Do you? No. But when I get back up the next time, I'm trying to get a hit. When the love of God is in our heart, it's subtle like that. We try to get up, we try to obey God. Do we fall? Yeah, absolutely, we're going to get back on our knees and we're going to repent of sins. When I get up in the morning, I'm not going to go, you know, I really failed yesterday, so the heck with it. I think I'll just live like, no, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to get up and try again. But I'm not going to go sitting in a dugout saying I'm never getting up one more time ever again because I struck out. I'm not going to do that because Christ died for me. And I'm not going to get in the plate and get so angry at myself if I don't hit the ball that I'm just going to stand there and pout like a little baby the rest of my life either. I'm going to say, all right, I'm going to do the best I can in the power and the mercy of Christ, but I know one thing. Jesus got me covered. He fulfilled the law completely. And now I want to walk in the Spirit. He already accepted me and loves me, okay? The table is a symbolic of our understanding of the gospel. Jesus died. Bread is his body. It was broken for us. The blood, the cup was shed for you. Maybe you know Christ. If you do, you're welcome to the table. If you don't know Christ, I pray you'd repent and receive Christ into your life. You'll never make it on your own. You need a Savior. You need Jesus. He died and lived a perfect life that you'll never live. He atoned for sins because he was perfect. He rose victorious over sin, death, and hell so you can have life. Turn from him, repent from your sins, which means to turn and trust in Jesus. And maybe you're here today and you know what? I'm that inferior person. I struggle with that. I need to rest. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Maybe you're here, you're the inferior person, a superior person, and you're thinking, you know what? I, I do look down on others regularly. I need to repent of that sin because this cross just levels that for us. So we're going to spend time confessing sin. We're going to spend time repenting of sin. I want to thank you for, for uh, paying close attention for me for this long. I wanted to get it out, and we did. And we're just going to confess. We're going to repent. We're going to confess. The band's going to come up. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a family. We'll conclude, okay? Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you that we don't have to run from the law. The law is given to reflect who you are, but we're glad and thankful, very thankful and grateful that Jesus fulfills the law, dies in our place, lives the perfect life. His righteousness has been imputed to us, and therefore we can hear what you have to say. We don't have to run from you. Our lives can be changed by the power of the gospel. As we apply the gospel to our lives, as we look at sin and we can say, Lord, we'll try. But you love us. You're, you're our Father. We're your children. Help us, Lord, to live a life that is separate but living on mission as well. Help us to live a life that's repentive, not inferior, not superior, but, Lord, that is humble and yet confident in you. 
and help us, Lord, to use your, your, uh, your good word for us to guide and lead us, uh, particularly to the place of Jesus Christ, who is our God and Savior. And we ask all this in his name, in Jesus' precious, sweet name we pray. Amen.